Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, look, thanks for coming. Uh, now, there was a time when the young teenage me um, could be found stumbling about in suede boots and uh, old scarves and army surplus greatcoats, proudly clutching my copies of This Was and Stand Up by Jethro Tull. I'd probably wish I had a crimson bowler hat as well. And I can only imagine my boyish excitement if I'd known that one day this magnificent group would uh, be about to embark on their 50th anniversary tour. And that day has come. Please welcome the magnificent Ian Anderson. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. We shall address the tour later. Yeah, the man at the curtain, it's okay to let the girls in now. As one, as one. And there is the there's the reason why we're here. Uh, your 50th anniversary tour, which starts in uh, when does it start? In early April. So you, you've started rehearsing for that, Ian? Yeah, we did a little bit of um, prep. The, the, the guys in the band are really very good at um, coming in fairly well armed with uh, with all the parts and arrangements they've got to do. So I send it to them weeks, months before they, they get MP3 files and set lists and stuff that's rather tedious but they, in fact I don't even send it, they pluck it from the ether pluck it from the ether it's, uh, it's on Dropbox but you can't get it, they can so it's a shared, <laughs> a shared Dropbox folder that has all the itineraries all the you know, flight numbers and the booking references and all the stuff a, a band and crew need in order to save me money on having an expensive tour manager, which I'm not going to do. You can tell he manages his own group. Quite rightly. We're going to talk about that in yeah. detail later on. So, but the 50th anniversary tour, has that been part of your plans for a while, that you were definitely going to do it? Well, this time last year I was definitely not going to do it. It was... Uh, <laughs> Not my idea of... I'm not a nostalgic person, really. Anniversaries, birthdays, even on a personal level, it doesn't work for me. So I, um, I really was determined I would just let this year slip by. And then, you know, around the middle of the year, I thought, well, maybe we should, you know, just maybe slip in a few dates in the UK, just for old times' sake. And then, of course, that grew. And, and then I find myself getting rather enthused by the idea of the murky nostalgia and celebrating the... the um, you know, the idea that you are literally uh, kind of old guys and still doing what you set out to do. You see, when I grew up, I didn't, I didn't go for uh, pop music or 
whatever was in the charts. It was it was blues and folk music and, and stuff. And everybody I listened to were my father's age. I mean, they're all old guys. So I grew up with the idea that my musical heroes being old men when I was listening to them as a young teenager, that that's kind of the way things worked. And so that it didn't seem too odd after a couple of years of being in Jethro Tull that uh, it could be a career for life, and, and that's the way it's turned out. We, we, we die with our boots on us, uh, people in the world of arts and entertainments. We don't get retired. So what was on the, on the record player? This is a traditional word in your ear question. What was on the record player when you were growing up in your house? Did you have in, a record in, player in, in, your, in your house when you were growing up? No, we had a gramophone. Oh, of course. Yes. With little brass needles that oh, you right. put in yeah. and then... So a wind-up. We're talking wind-up. No, no, it was the age of electricity. Right. <laughs> and, um, Can you remember any records that were played on this Yeah, thing? the stuff that I, that, that I listened to when I was about seven or eight years old, my father allowed me very carefully to play some of his his, uh, his 78 RPM shellac uh, records, which were basically big band music. Mostly American, mostly big band stuff. And it had a kind of a thing that got my attention. It was a bit more interesting than, than Presbyterian church music and uh, folk music that I grew up with in Scotland. And it was the syncopation. It was the fact that it had this this this. I couldn't put my finger on it as a child, but it it was the it was the blue scale, and it was syncopation. That's what drew me into that music. And and then when I heard, at the age of nine, I think I heard Elvis Presley singing "Heartbreak Hotel," and that, you know, kind of got me in a, slightly into the idea of American rock and roll. And then growing up post-war, you see, uh, we we were we had access to. American comics, and we even had a couple of Americans in our primary school in Edinburgh. So I got a little bit of that childhood Americana, Daisy Air Guns, and and the weird kind of bikes that they used to ride over their children, which they still make, and the name of which I can't unfortunately remember right, right. now. But yeah, I grew up with that kind of Americana thing, and so rock and roll, and then blues and American jazz. That's what shaped my teenage years. Well, you say you're not one for nostalgia, but we're going to have to go back, I'm afraid. Uh, that's that's Dunfermline, which is where you grew up, and that's probably taken round about the time you were living there, and I don't know, in the in the, 50s. the 50s. Yeah. The car there is is looks like a dead ringer for the car my father had. Right. And I remember to this day that the uh, the registration number of that car, which I think was called a Vanguard. Right, or something yes. such, and it was um, it was parked outside our house in fifty four Murrayfield Avenue in Edinburgh, which we moved to when I was three years old, and the registration number was AGE two hundred and eighty four. Right, and that's um, stuck in my mind, and of course, um, I'm way behind that. <laughs> what did your father? <laughs> what did your father do? Um, he was well. He he took over his father's business. He, he started off as a a surveyor in a mine in the in the, the Fifeshire area and went down the mines with a, a piece, as they would call it, which was just cold stuff that you would chew on way down there. And uh, porridge made just from water and salt and oatmeal, cold, and just in a, in a, f- a flask, which would then, by the time it got to lunchtime, it sort of turned into a kind of cold porridgey mess, and that, that's what they ate. And it was, you know, it was, it was truly working down the mine. Yeah. But then he took no, over, took over the, my father's. The company, was it? Yeah, it yeah. was. Um, I think his his father was um, 
was involved in the in the steam engines that that uh, did all the mine work and hauled coal and presumably engines that yeah. uh, worked the um, the lifts. You know, so it was um, they, he had a company that was making. Um, a, a, a concoction, a chemical concoction that he'd come up with, which would descale uh, steam boilers of, of all kinds of steam trains, anything. And it was called the RSA, Robert Sharp Anderson, the RSA Boiler Fluid Company. <laughs> I just love fluid. It just, yes. it's just, you know, the, the bodily fluid company. It's, it's just, it's perfect, <laughs> you know. So, you, what was his reaction to your early forays into? You had a group of the Blades, wasn't it? That you were the first group you were in. Well, that was yeah, One that was at, that was at school, at Blackpool Grammar School, in Sweden. At twelve, yeah. at twelve, uh, we 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 left to go to live in Blackpool, which is yeah. where my parents met as young people in the Tower Ballroom of Blackpool. Yeah, actually, in the Tower Ballroom. Yeah, dancing. Yeah, it was a, he, he was from Scotland on the Scottish. Week, you know, when right? Yeah, came they down there and she, on she was from Manchester, Manchester yeah. family, and they, you know, they uh, they met on the on the floor of the the tower ballroom, and so it was a weird kind of belief that one day they would, might return to the roots of their relationship, and and so yes, I, I am a product of that union between Scotland and England, so you can guess which way. Yes, <laughs> you're going to save the time. I felt about the uh, the referendum, <laughs> yeah. which I'm not allowed to vote in because I, I technically was not a householder, so I couldn't take a part in the referendum vote. Even Gavin Esler, my my pal, was uh, was mightily put out when Alex Salmon said, "Well, you're not getting the vote." And, 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 and he said, "I'm Scottish. That's where I grew up." You can, and he said, "Nope, you need to." You can only vote in the referendum if you've got a hoose in Scotland, <laughs> which, of course, Gavin, living working with the BBC, did not have. So, yeah, we were all banned from voting, even though we might have felt the Scottish connection was more than just a, right. a passing one. So how did your parents think feel when you were first interested in... Pretty much the same way as I would feel if my children had come to me and said, we want to be in a rock band. So, you know, the answer is get a day job, you know, and think about it. But plan plan A, plan B, plan C, that, that always seemed sensible to me. So at the time when I was at school, wondering what I might do, I did have two or three career choices in mind and um, and being, following something in in <laughs> arts and entertainment seemed like a third choice for me because it was a bit too risky. What were the others? Uh, the first choice was to, was a, to be a policeman. I tried, tried to enrol in the in the Blackpool Police Force as a as a cadet. They yeah. turned me down because I had too many O levels. And uh, <laughs> that, that, is actually, that is actually the truth. Yes. Well, they thought you were a troublemaker. They yeah. thought that I was leaving school too early and I should finish my education and get a law degree and then come back. And they said, "I'll give you a really good job in the police force." So it was a very responsible and sensible approach. However, disappointing it was to me. So you were what fifteen or something at the time, and you, yeah, you were 16, you 16. went along to the police station and said, "I'd like to be a policeman." That's right. And I also went along to the Blackpool Evening Gazette because I thought. I want to follow, follow some real scurrilous profession. I'll be a journalist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you, you turn up You're there and it. say I'd like to be a journalist. Turned up and said I'd like to, I'd like to be a, a, a newspaper person, please. And they said, sorry, we have no vacancies. I said, I'll make the tea. They said, we've already got one of those. And um, so I didn't get a, a look in there. 
But seriously, were you were the kind of person, even quite young, when you were motivated to go and do that? You know, you go in the yeah. front door and say, yeah, I want I, to be... I really didn't want to stay on. I wasn't enjoying school. And just because you happen to pass exams, it, if you're not having fun with it, it didn't seem... You know, it was a, probably a silly decision in some ways, but good decision in the others. And I, I was actually chucked out in the end and was expelled, as indeed my wife was expelled from a convent. Technically, it wasn't expulsion. I think in both cases, we were just... It was suggested we didn't return the following day. <laughs> right, right. You were let go. <laughs> yes. Yes. So we talked a little bit about the music that, yeah, you, 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 um, that excited you, you know, growing up. Big band music was initially a, a kind of a big thing with you, was it? Well, it wasn't a big thing, but it was, a, it was a, an awakening of, of a kind of music that had that... Uh, you know, when you can't, you've got a little bit of a, the hairs go up on the back of your neck, and you, and you know something happening, but you can't put a name to it because it doesn't have any musical education. But it was syncopation, the blues scale, something a bit, something a bit naughty about it. But it was also quite sophisticated, and of course, it did contain improv solos. Saxophone players just suddenly started to fly and, and play solos, which always seemed incredibly exciting. And incredibly, like a black magic, a, a black art. You know, I didn't know how you would go about doing that. It seemed Im- impossible that the, you could figure that out and the brain could work fast enough. But it, it intrigued me. So that was what I wanted to do. And it was a time when a lot of, you know, white uh, uh, British groups were playing black American blues, weren't they? I mean, there were quite a lot of... Well, it was at the same time as I was getting interested. Yeah. I think uh, the... Um, the Catalyst was actually a, a series of, of tours that, were, that came over from the US to Europe, not just to the UK. And they, um, they featured all the legendary performers. Oh, yeah, Johnny Hooker, that's right, yeah. Exactly, the all Stones that stuff. And, and I saw that tour at the Manchester Free Trade Hall. Oh, right. And I'm pretty sure the same tour, when it played in other places, that you would have found Jeff Beck and, yeah, and, and Richie Blackmore yeah. and Jimmy Page and Eric Clapton. They all would have been at these... These gigs, because the buzz was... Yeah. These were the people that we were getting excited about. It was definitely a subculture, definitely just the word on the street. And if you could club together and buy a blues album from some little record store that imported American music, this was, this was heady stuff. It wasn't... Um, this was long before the time when you could go to iTunes or Spotify. Now, anything you want in the world that's ever been recorded is just a couple of finger... Jabs away. Do you think well, there's a change? Tr- trust me on that one. You're too old. You probably don't have computer skills. <laughs> do you th- do you think it's a shame that that nowadays thing all music is so available? Whereas when you grew up, you had to hunt it out. Yeah, you had to hunt it down. It, it was hunting too, and it, it, it that, that was part of the thrill. But on balance, I think I prefer the accessibility. So you know, I'm I'm an internet and computer guy, and have been since. The BBC Acorn computer. Anybody remember that oh, one? Yeah. Or the ZX eighty one. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah, we, we, we pitched in with all of all of that stuff back then. And and so computers that were becoming as soon as they were word processors even, then then they were in the office and, and it just became something you really had to learn to use. And um so so we learned all that stuff in our children who were teeny, they they they, they were, you know, Japping away at the keyboards and things, no idea what they were doing. But um, whereas adults seem to be afraid of pressing the wrong button and doing something terrible, mm. whereas children just find their way through it all, and, and that's the world we live in. So it is accessible, and, yeah. and that's a probably a good thing because it's so difficult to find serious porn when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> 
There was something called H and E, health and oh, efficiency. Oh, yes. Okay, anybody who remembers Never heard, that yeah. one has got a dirty yeah. secret. I think you should share with us no all idea. now. Yeah. <laughs> Topless people playing tennis. It used, right. it used to be available in the one shop in town that also sold kind of rubber goods and things yeah. like that. Yeah, it, it, was. it was a very curious kind of uh, subset of the retail market. Hmm. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> anyway, we've got uh, a picture, I think, of the John Evans band. Uh, yeah, this is them in 1960, what would it be? Yeah, six, and the interesting thing is it does have the S. We've been going through all of this for the, the tour programme, back and forth, back and forth over the last few weeks, because John Evans was his name, and uh, John Spencer Evans, and, um, and his mother was, uh, you know, was Mrs Evans with an S. But we dropped the S. I think maybe he, maybe it was his idea, maybe it was Jeffrey Hammond's idea that we, John Evan, sounded a little bit more kind of sexy. I love the way you tinkered with names. Didn't you change yeah. Jeffrey Hammond's name to Jeffrey Hammond Hammond at one point? Well, his it didn't sound posh enough. His mo- <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the truth was that his father, his surname was Hammond, and, and he married a, a lady who's we'll called also called Hammond. Right, so, yeah. oh, really? so uh, we decided to hyphenate them. Again, That's I'm not so sure. It may have been Jeffrey's yeah, idea, yeah. maybe mine. No but, disrespect uh, to the great John uh, Evan, who's, who's on the right in that picture playing mm-hmm. the keyboard, but why was it called the John Evans Band and not uh, you, you on the left there were the, were the leader of the group and the harmonica player and the singer? Uh, because his mum paid for the van. Oh, OK. <laughs> as simple as that, was it? It was as simple as that. Yeah. And then later on, she paid when he... He played the drums, you see, originally when, when it was the Blades at Blackpool Grammar, and then switched to playing, um, playing Hammond organ because his mother was, was a piano teacher. And he'd done up to grade eight, you see, at, at uh, school. So it was natural for him to switch. Uh, we couldn't afford a Hammond to begin with. It was a Farfisa, this dreadful yeah, plasticky yeah. thing. that was, It was either that or a Vox Continental, but everybody used those. So we thought, we'll, we'll, go, we'll do the Farfisa. But uh, it was... It was a, a, a step too far in, in, in plasticky, horrible terms. So whilst it, that is the far feature. What other there. names did you go through? Uh, Can you remember any yeah, other names? Yeah, well, it was the John Evan. The first thing was, was the John Evan, without the S, blues. Not oh, the John Evan blues good. band. It's just name. the John Evan yeah, yeah. blues. So what year are we talking about here? 1966? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then 67, it was the, the John Evans uh, band on this piece of uh, photographic promo stuff, but it that's a, a misprint. It was in fact called the John Evan yeah. Band. It was also called at one point the John Evan Smash. And then we we had appeared a couple of times at the Marquee Club, trying to you know get get a foot in the door, unsuccessfully. We went back as Navy Blue. This is another. <laughs> Another of the names, and then uh, I remember one turning up at some pub somewhere, you know, not unlike this little room in the back of a pub, and on the blackboard in the pub, you know, probably said meat pies, you know, two and sixpence or whatever, and tonight, Ian Henderson's bag of blues. <laughs> so we, we arrived to unload our van and thought, must be us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you tell close me, enough. Close enough. So yeah. you, if you're going to get, if you're going to get paid a tenner, you'd, you'd show up and do it. But then the lucky time when we first, or our agent gave us the name Jethro Tull, having studied history at school, and and since I didn't, I didn't know he'd named us after a, an 18th century agriculturalist who invented the seed drill. And it was only a couple of weeks later when I learned the awful truth that it was too late because. The first appearance was on the 2nd of February 1968 at the Marquee Club. 
the first time we were billed as, as, uh, as Jethro Tull um, at the Marquee. So that was, that was the, 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 really the watershed, because John G., the manager at that point, decided, I'll pretend that I don't know you've tried here two or three times. I'll give you every Thursday, actually every second Thursday. So we were now a resident band of the Marquee Club, which was not just and that a was foot, the real turning not, point. Not just it? a foot in the door. That was a yeah. passport to fame and yeah. fortune. By we got so this sure, is yeah. this is probably you with Jeff Toll in 1968. Yeah. So that's can I just you know. That's quite a switch, isn't it? Yeah, this the, is the two guy, years. The guy, the guy on the left is pretending to be Patrick McGoohan from Danger Man because <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. infatuated by that kind of transatlantic cool accent. Yeah. And I love the balloons. <laughs> and so uh, my whole persona was built around this, this sort of rather smooth kind of transatlantic... <laughs> it's kind of fast twit. show. Yeah. Twit. <laughs> yeah. But with, with this embryonic moustache and beard, which was uh, suitably embellished with a little bit of charcoal from, right. liberated from, the, from, from uh, Blackpool Art College. But seriously, <coughs> two years later, you're yeah. that. How does that happen? Yeah, well, it's... Same wispy beard, it's just uh, hair grew out a little bit. And, and in fact, I'm wearing Glenn Cornick's jacket because I actually couldn't afford a jacket of my own. And um, later on, in fact, what was really famous was that I wore the old overcoat my father gave me. And that was my, my real uniform that got people's attention was the big old... Let's overcoat. talk about great coats. I'm really glad you brought up the subject mm-hmm. because I, I wanted to... Seriously, great coats I have a feeling it's going to be the next photograph. Great coats were a big thing, weren't they? 1968. Why yeah. were they such a big thing? I don't know. I don't army know. Everybody army surplus yeah, Salvation in, in, Army. In my father's case, it was a big worsted sort of uh, dark grey gentleman's coat. It wasn't uh, an ex. Oh, yours was yours was proper. It was the real deal. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, we and could he, only afford cheap he, ones. Right? Yeah. Yeah. No, he he threw this to me along with a with a blazer um, as I was leaving home. And he would no, 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 have a you know, good luck, son, or hope everything works out. Or, of course, you know, the minute you want to come back, just just phone us and we'll send a money for a train ticket. Nothing like that, but just his words were he tossed this at me, take this said, blazer and go. He, no, quite, he, he just said, It's going to be a cold winter. Oh, god, that's great, <laughs> none more Scottish. Yeah. And it was it, bloody freezing in 19, the winter yeah. of 1967 was, a, was really nasty, right. So there you are on the, you know, on the marquee uh, list of acts who are playing in November 1968. What was it like playing the marquee in those days? It was, it was a little bit scary because, you know, I spent the two years before, I'd been uh, working in, a, <clears throat> in Lewis's department store in Blackpool, um, earning a little bit of money in the summer and was, um, was in charge of the, of the, uh, the news, the, the news, the magazine's Stall. It sold all kinds of magazines, except not the one we talked about earlier. Okay. And um, <laughs> um, but it was uh, you know Melody Maker, New Musical Express, Record Mirror, Sounds. All these things were the were the, the newspapers that 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 I would read voraciously during my my lunch break. I would smuggle a Melody Maker up to the staff canteen and pore over all these names of people playing at uh, in particularly in London, which was obviously the the big prize if you could make it to London yeah, and yeah. try and... If, we knew streets were not paved with gold, but I did know that a man called Roy Harper, who came from the same area and uh, been at, I think, St Edward's uh, Grammar School in uh, somewhere not just outside Blackpool, and he had left a couple of years before to seek fame and fortune as a folk singer. And the word was, 
he hadn't come back. So either he was a success or he was dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, and Roy is even to this day very much alive and is um, is is legendary. So he was he was the guy. He got away before I did, and in a way I was, was following in his footsteps. I was conscious of the fact that it was possible to leave Blackpool and get a gig, and because uh, other Blackpool bands at the time, you know, they they never made it in London. No, and. Um, they were bands who were playing five nights a week and, and doing really pretty well. And uh, the most famous band around at the time was Reverend Black and his Rocking Vickers. Yeah. And my Fender Strat that I had when I was playing guitar in the, in the Blades, actually in the John Evan band before I quit playing guitar, um, was a, a beaten up old white Fender Strat that had previously belonged to the rhythm guitarist of Reverend Black and the Rocking Vickers. And his name was Lemmy. Yeah, of course. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. You were saying you were playing the guitar, but in that picture there, you, you've probably only been playing the flute for a short period of time. So why did you choose the flute? Because it was a, it was a very definite decision, wasn't it, to, to, to try and find something original? Well, reading the melody maker, you couldn't, it couldn't escape you. There were all these, these gunslinger guitar players down in London all doing incredibly well. And, and um, you know, to be playing not second but third fiddle to Eric Clapton or Jimmy Page or any of the guys that we heard about... Uh, just didn't seem like it was a, you know, it, 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 just to be an also round. I knew I wasn't going to be that good as a guitar player, and so I, I decided to quit playing guitar and, and part exchange my white Fender Strat for um, a thirty-pound flute, a Selma Gold Seal, as a, the cheapest, flimsy, awful student flute, and a Unidyne Three Sure microphone. Um, which is, in some ways, this is a Shure 58, and then its its earlier brother was the Shure 57, and the Unidyne 3 was the precursor of the Shure 57. Fascinating stuff, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Make a note of this. <laughs> We've all learned something. But why, it was just it was just though? to stand out. It was to do something different. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if you're sporting a flute, you can stand out, and it's um, it's it was the it was the compactness of it and the, and the machinery. I loved the the fact it was so you know impeccably kind of little and and, and brilliantly engineered. But I couldn't play it, and I got it in August of '67. <laughs> couldn't get a noise out of the damn thing, and I put it away until December, when I was by which time I was down in Luton trying to make a go of things. And um, somebody said, it's, it's a bit like blowing across the top of a bottle. Mm-hmm. <coughs> you know, I can't do it with a plastic one. No, it it a, yeah, you know, yeah. you can do that thing where you... Uh, yeah. So suddenly I got a note. And then I got another one. But they weren't very good notes. And I found if I sang the note while I played it, then it gave it... It reinforced it and made it you know, much more aggressive. So I had about maybe five notes that I could play on the flute in December, which is enough to play Smoke on the Water. <laughs> <laughs> or Aqualung, or, or, or half of the music that was ever written and recorded as the blues. You know, it's essentially the blues scale, so I could do that. And, and, and by January and February, this is probably February, um, I, I, was, I was playing at, you know, at all the gigs. Not in so, every song, but, you know, maybe... Half the music. I played so, harmonica as well, you see. So it's fair to sh- say you were never short of confidence on stage? <laughs> Absolutely, you know, <laughs> completely opposite. There's a fact that when you're not confident, when you really have 
first of all, you know you're a charlatan because you can't really play the flute. You're just sort of making it up as you go along. And also the fact that Mick Abrahams, who was the guitar player, was a big confident sort of, on the outside anyway, confident, uh, great singer, great guitar player, you know, life and soul kind of guy. And, um, you know, I had to I had to play catch-up all the time with Mick because he was... He came out of the box as a fully established, uh, able musician and confident about getting up in front of an audience. And uh, so I had to learn pretty quickly at the Marquee Club. But it was it was a, a studied eccentricity that got me noticed because I, I I used to arrive wearing my dad's big old overcoat, yeah. carrying a pink um, paper carrier bag uh, from Woolworths. Yes, definitely was from Woolworths in which there was a hot water bottle, an alarm clock, uh, my flute, some harmonicas, and, uh, and several packs of Dr. White's sanitary towels. Why? <laughs> Wait, why, why? <laughs> Question mark over um, all it's, yes, yes. it's such it's a good far. non sequitur, though, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Um, yeah, well, actually, the, the, the alarm clock went off during the drum solo in order to remind everybody that drum solos could be pretty interminable. <laughs> and uh, the hot water bottle was there because I was so bloody cold most of the time. I used to clutch the hot water bottle, and I would then, of course, pretend. I was, pretend to drink, you know, what people assume must be neat brandy from my my rubbishy uh, hot water bottle and then uh, the sanitary towels which is the bit I have a feeling you're waiting to know about yeah. were usually acquired at the, in the ladies loo at the marquee club where there was a machine on the wall that dispensed you know for a few pence a pack about the size of a hard pack of cigarettes with a sanitary towel in it and I would buy as many of those as I could afford and during the show I would light up a cigarette and, and, and I'd give one to Mick. So you've got the attention of the audience. And then I would light my cigarette and say, oh, I'm sorry, sorry, did anybody smoke? And of course, several people would go, yeah. So I would, um, I would take one cigarette and throw it out and somebody grab it, you know, gleefully. And I said, let me see, I'll rummage in the, in the carrier bag and bring out what looked like a pack of embassy, but in fact was a, another square pack. And I would, I would, tossed three or four of these out into the audience and it was like feeding frenzy at the zoo in the <laughs> penguin enclosure. I mean, it was just, it was brilliant. And they pounced on these things and wrestled them open thinking a pack of 20 Bensons in there or something and only to find, and this is the inevitability of it all, is, is the glorious bit that, that you knew that the air would be filled with returning sanitary <laughs> towels when they, re- <laughs> they realised what yeah. was in there. <laughs> Hurling them back at me, which was just great. I mean, it was theatre. Low-cost the theatre. But you, say, found, yeah. you found these yeah, things absolutely. out by um, not by being confident yeah. and whatever. It was just like any port in a store. And any, standing on one leg. could presumably. do to get some kind of rapport yeah. with an audience. Well, yeah. So presumably it was the, this kind of thing that brought you to the attention of Terry Ellis and Chris Wright, who were mm. your kind of early agents, managers... It looked people behind Chrysalis Records. This is looking worrying like that you have access to the yet unprinted tour programme because most of the pictures you're showing are ones that... It's all on the internet. Well, I know that one is, yeah. Yeah. I found it there too. Yeah, that's that's, uh, Terry Ellis, bottom left, and Chris Wright, probably circa 1969, 70s. They managed you in the early days, didn't they? And we all booking agents. And Terry produced all the records, obviously. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Chris worked up... They were both social secretaries at their respective universities. And we met Chris uh, because he got us a gig somewhere in the Manchester area. And and 
you know, I didn't think he particularly liked us, but thought we were okay. And um, when Terry and Chris got together to form the Ellis Wright Agency in London, um, Chris was our, you know, our, our, our point man, you know, the person we could go to to say, can you get us any gigs in London? And uh, that's why we moved down to, to Luton, ostensibly, as the John Evan band, and when the rest of them, after a couple of weeks of starvation, went back to Blackpool, leaving Glenn Cornick and me down there to get together with uh, Clyde Bunker and, and Mick, who'd already kind of joined as a guitar player. Yeah. That's when uh, the seven-piece John Evan band turned out to only be consisting of four and none of us were called John Evan. Right. But it <laughs> took a magical two or three weeks before this fed its way back to Chris Wright, who got very upset that we were masquerading as the band that, that he'd booked us out as. And, uh, in fact, we were Jethro Tull. But we were getting good... Or actually, not we were the... What were they called at the time? We were probably Navy Blue by then. But whatever it was, we were, we were getting asked to, to go back and play in the pubs. And so... He forgave us, and um, Terry managed ten years after. You possibly remember from that period of time, yeah. and and uh, that's Chris. And then Terry was managing a Scottish band called Clouds, who were quite good songwriters, oh, yeah. but were never really going to make it. And um, what was their biggest influence on you? What, what things did they change in Jethro Tull? Anything about the look and the sound? Well, Chris the tried to change the early Jethro Tull by persuading me that I should not be singing or playing the flute. So that wasn't. The, <laughs> quite the proper thing to do in a blues band and and why don't you stand at the back and play rhythm piano he said whilst uh, Mick you know does the singing and is the front man and yeah I probably humoured him and said yeah great idea I'll, I'll save up and you know buy a piano or something and but carried on regardless uh, and you know, what seems like it might have been months or even years was days in the in the episodic yes. nature of yeah. what, how things developed so by the end of the week we were probably getting noticed and I was being you know spotted as a the the unlikely flute player in a blues band which gave us a point of difference from yeah. purely marketing standpoint we had something that Fleetwood Mac and Savoy Brown and Chicken Shack didn't have we had a dodgy flute player who stood on one leg absolutely everybody noticed and yeah. is is that one of the reasons why you were on the rock, Rolling Stones rock and roll circus I think Charlie Watson and Bill Wyman had somehow maybe they'd stopped in at the Marquee Club or something but they, they seemed to know who we were. And um, and they'd persuaded Mick and the producer, Lindsay Hogg. M- Michael Lindsay Hogg. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, to, uh, to, to, to have us on as the the token rookie band. Because the other folks on this were, some of them, very well. The Who were on it, and Eric Clapton was on it. And, uh, blah, 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 blah. Dirty Mac? Was it John Lennon That's and right. uh, John Keith Lennon. Richards? Yeah, sort of a... a, a Rich Mitchell and somebody else. Band, yeah. yeah, and they did... And John Lennon... Your blues. Yeah. I remember them doing that, and it was it was really rather yeah. good. But why, there why, you why didn't it come out? Because you know that was recorded in 1968. Didn't come out for what 30 years? Was it 40 well, years? Sh- Brian Jones wasn't in great shape at that point, and he died shortly afterwards. I think out of a sense of two things, really, out of the fact that it wasn't, it didn't. Brian hardly played. I mean, he was just kind of out of it, and and, and being rather ostracised by the other guys. So I think they felt a bit of guilt about it and it wasn't a suitable memento of, of, yeah. uh, of, of Brian Jones' final performance. Also, the Stones were great at rehearsal. I mean, they were brilliant. Mick Jagger whipped them on. I mean, he really, really was um, full of energy and enthusiasm and he, and he, it was, he was really good. 
but he overcooked it in, in rehearsal and by the time it came to the, the actual performance that was recorded, filmed, he'd kind of burnt out his voice and it wasn't as good. The, the Who, on the other hand, were playing a waiting game and sort of shambled through <laughs> rehearsal, falling over things, but when it came to the show, they were a powerhouse and, yeah, I'm sure. and very yeah. well rehearsed. Yeah. The Stones hadn't played for months. Yeah. There was a new album called Beggar's Banquet. It was yeah. a very good record, but they just released that. So this, of course, is post-Mick Abrahams now. He'd, he'd just left uh, the a couple of weeks before, and so we um, we called uh, we, we called a friend, <laughs> Tony Iommi, and that's Tony Iommi, yeah, yeah. who um, who stepped in. Uh, you, you possibly can't see there, but his guitar is not plugged in. So um, because we didn't have a guitarist and we hadn't got time to prepare, then uh, I think they mimed. Um, Glenn pretended to play harmonica, but I think I think I'm pretty sure I was singing and playing live. To a backing track. Do you ever do you ever feel looking back and uh, and you know, this next picture is a kind of classic reminder of this that you met everybody that kind of everybody was in the same world you know they all they all met each other in the blue boar or, or wherever at the speakeasy. Yeah, well, to some extent that was the case that that you did. And, and sometimes you know people were very matey with each other, and and you know I wasn't very good at that. I, I wasn't. You know, I didn't drink alcohol. I wasn't really a, a friendly sort of gregarious type. So I tended to see other people, and sometimes, you know, there were people that you would give a nod to if it was the Blue Ball Cafe or in in Wardour Street. The club was called the Chass, which was just up the road from the Marquee Club. People would always congregate in there, and uh, I think I once went there and met Roger Chapman and noticed worryingly that he had. The, the word hate tattooed on the knuckles of, of one hand because he was a pretty scary guy, Roger Chapman but, but I was a big fan of, uh, of uh, family even before the Marquee Club days they were from up north as well right. So we're looking at the, the famous cover of You Can All Join In which was one of the early mm. uh, budget sampler albums on the Island label mm. and there's Everybody gathered, yeah. Steve and, Winwood, and, yourself. And as you can imagine, in this kind of group shot, there are managers and people saying, make sure you're standing at the front so you can see you. So Terry Ellis, who'd obviously said to, to Clouds, Billy Ritchie and the, the drummer chap over here, um, make sure you're at the front. And um, you're Actually, the that's back. not the drummer, that's the drummer. Uh, well, that's another Clouds guy. Make sure you're standing at the front. Whereas, of course, I said to everybody else, make sure you're standing at the back. So this is... <laughs> <laughs> When was it? Was it taken at six in the morning or something? Or some story, story was it? <laughs> it was. It was a weird. It was a weird thing. But of course, there are, there are actually some fairly famous people here. Oh yeah, Steve oh, Winwood, Sandy Denny, perhaps. Sandy Denny. Uh, Chris Paul Chris Rogers, Sandy Wood, Denny, yeah, yeah, Ian from Matthews. Free from Free. In fact, there's another Ian. Another Ian Anderson. Ian actually, Ander yes, Ian yeah. A. Anderson. Ian A. Anderson, who, who whinged and moaned because he believed to this day probably that he was. His contract was torn up by Chris Blackwell at Island Records because... They'd already signed it. Because I had said that there can't be another Ian Anderson on the Island Records label, which is complete and utter, you know, rubbish. It, I never said such a thing at all. I didn't even know who he was. And he was a kind of a folk singer and um, acoustic kind of guy. And um, But he got really bent out of shape because he believed that uh, I was behind his... Uh, the end of his record contract. Right. Yeah. right. So dwindling this, or non-existent sales yeah. had nothing to do with it. And I, I remember once getting a royalty check, which you do, 
uh, from Do time you? to time, every six months, yes. And, and, and it, it was to Ian Anderson, and it was for like two and sixpence. And then I realised it was actually the other bloke. And so I, I'm doing the right thing. I made sure this went straight back to, you know, whatever, and to, to, to be given terms. The guy's probably, you know, hadn't two pennies to rub together. He'd probably living off Cornish pasties. Two and six would be, a, you know, be a week's supply. He'd be very grateful that I returned his royalty. And this is sometime in the late 70s. Okay. And I then thought... I wonder if he's been getting any of my royalty checks. Yes! Yeah. <laughs> As he drove by, waving yes. out of the way, in his yeah, Porsche. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this is Stand Up, which was, you know, it's impossible to, to overemphasise what a fantastically hip record it was at the time. It was amazing. Well, it was, it was actually a pretty good record, a because really it, was, record. it was musically, it, it drew upon lots of other influences that I'd had, you know, in my early years, and suddenly it wasn't just blues anymore. It was bits of classical stuff and what might be called world music today. There yeah. Was other different influences, and, and it, was a, it was a, you know, I was quite proud of that album, especially well, like because I was learning about it. working in the studio as well, you know, from a production point of yeah. view. It was, every day was really exciting. You found new tricks, new ideas. Working with creative people like um, the brother of, of um, Glyn Johns, who produced the Rolling Stones. Andy uh, his Johns. brother was Andy Johns, yeah. and he was a tape-op. And, and uh, on this, we, we, we gave, I gave him the job to actually be the engineer. It was his first gig. And... Um, you know, it was great working with him. He was full of confidence, but, you know, made loads of mistakes and things, but he was very confident. Tell us about the, the cover. I Ter- mean, yeah. you know, what happens? Did it's, you just say, I want it to be pop-up no, figures? This, the, this is entirely Terry Ellis. He, he did... Uh, I did... The first album cover, this was, that was my idea, was to, was to do the thing of us dressed up as old men, surrounded weirdly by a bunch of dogs... And the album would be called This Was Jethro Tull. Because I knew that whatever came next, it wouldn't be that kind of a thing. I wanted to move on from the sort of blues thing that I didn't really feel was credible for a middle-class white boy to be playing the blues. So uh, I, I knew whatever was next, it wouldn't be like This Was. So hence This Was. And, and, and the weirder thing, too, was that they actually let me get away with the fact that I didn't have the name of the band or the album on the front cover. It was just a photograph. And they said, you can't do that. It's, you've got to have the name of the band, and it's got to be on the front cover, otherwise in a record shop, and people don't know what it is. I said, exactly. They'll, they'll go, what's this? And then they'll pick it up and turn it over, and then they, they see it on the back. And so it was the enigmatic back cover was also quite fun too. But this time it was Terry's time to come up with... But this uh, worked as well, yeah. didn't it? Yeah, and, and, and was, it, it, it was a woodcut. Everybody talked he about it. He found an artist um, called James Grashow, who worked almost exclusively in woodcuts, which is, you know, you kind of learn to do that when you're a little kid at school or, you know, in lino, cutting lino and making prints and, and doing it. And he did it with wood, you know, the wooden chisel. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a punchy good bit of imagery, very post-hippie kind of silly, but it's, it's a good cover. But the, prob- pop, the pop-up thing was Terry's idea. And probably know. changes hands for a fortune now, doesn't it? Well, it has been reproduced weirdly and expensively in more recent times in its original pop-up form. But it was, again, think record companies didn't like this stuff. 
You know, they didn't like not having a name on the front cover. Yeah. And they also didn't like things that popped up in gatefold covers. They were so much more expensive, to Do which they wanted a... to apply packaging deductions, which was yeah. the bane of our lives back Do then. you have a copy of this? I think I do, yeah. Your original copy of this? Well, that I wouldn't know. I don't have a... Well, actually, I probably do have a record player somewhere, but it's not plugged in. Really? It's a bit like... Yeah, it's a bit like... Um, <laughs> It's a, a bit like, who was it, uh, Bill Clinton, was it, uh, you know, claiming that he didn't inhale or something? It's, it's, yeah, I, I have had record players, but I was never a big fan of vinyl. As a record producer and making music, you're so aware of the limitations of this medium that's so scratchy and, and the compromises you make and even sequencing the album to avoid the big dramatic song being at the end with the inner grooves having to work that much harder and inner groove distortion being a reality phase issues, having to cut the level down lower as you went into the middle of the album. You know, it's, All of these things were terrible compromises to have to make and only really when the CD came along were we freed from, from some of those realities of cutting and pressing the old vinyl records. Except this has hung on as a medium longer than CD, hasn't it? It has, and, and, the, and the weird thing is, even using the same old Neumann cutting lathes that are 50, 60 years old, which is what people like EMI and others have, uh, uh, the, all those that still are usable have been purchased, pirated for spares, and are, are in the few places that still... Mm. Um, cut vinyl. I've got to ask one quick te- but, but the people doing the, it are much better at the job than they were back then because yeah. they're such these days are so enthusiastic yeah. they've learned about it they, everything is you know is spotless and clean and amazingly they turn out much better vinyl cuts now and I know because I still do it than we did back in the in the 70s when George Porky Peckham, famous cutting engineer oh, yes. in the UK, yeah, who did uh, yeah Porky Prime cuts and Led Zeppelin, everybody went to him, and um, and George would be there, you know, with, with, a, with a fag on, you know, ash <laughs> going all over yeah. the cutting lathe, and a place was blue with cigarette smoke, and so you wonder why your the <laughs> Price album is going. <laughs> Little bits of ash and very quickly, just the the track we used to know on stand up yeah. has exactly the same chord sequence as Hotel California by the Eagles, as which came out sometime as, after. As people continually point I out, know. Yeah. why did you why did you been so uh, why do you never seem to complain about that? Or well, because it's it'd be you know a bit churlish to whinge about somebody who'd written a much much better song than my song, and if. The Eagles actually toured with Jethro Tull when just after Thick as a Brick came out in America, and the Eagles were kind of unknown. They'd just got their first single, Take It Easy, had just been released. And so they were on tour with us, and I think we may well have been playing uh, uh, We Used to Know, might have been in the, in the first part of the set back then, I don't know. But whatever it was, it's a chord sequence. The melody is different. The time signature is different. It has a certain... Yeah, okay, you can, mm. people have noticed it, but hell, you know, if I'd written if I'd written Hotel California, I wouldn't want to share the royalties with anybody. <laughs> no, no, it's it's that, that theirs is an original work. Yeah. It's a great song. Anybody who'd been proud to have written that is a piece of really yeah. good pop pop easygoing American rock. Great song. Much better than my song. So you got added to the the uh uh, Isle of Wight Bill quite late on and you were supported you were just underneath Jimi Hendrix and above Joan Byers and Leonard Cohen yeah, we, what, we, what can you remember about all that? Well I mean I remember being the um, you know we, we, we had to fly in in a 
Islander, little, you know, wobbly little aeroplane that flew into the Isle of Wight. And, and it was, we, we knew it was a big event. It was 600,000 people there. And we showed up to do our sound check, which we insisted on, on doing, in the morning. And, of course, everybody's asleep in their tents at the, uh, you know, <laughs> from the night before. And, um, and I apologised to them, you know, sorry for waking you up, guys. And, and they, the organisers were trying to get people out, you know, trying to clear them out. And I said, no, no, you can't do that. They're, they're in their tents. They're trying to get some kip, you know. So I said, don't worry, but sorry, we have to do a sound check. You know, so apologise about the noise, but no, don't leave. It's okay to stay here. And went through all of that, and then we, 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 we did our show. Is a bit of a race against time, because Hendrix, who we'd worked with before, and he was very instrumental in getting us uh, noticed in, in Europe um, with promoters. He was a very helpful Nice guy. But at this point, he was not a happy bunny with a new band and didn't want to play Hey Joe and Purple Haze, and, but knew he had to. And so he didn't want to go on last, understandably, because the whole thing was going pear-shaped. I mean, they were rioting outside. It was, it was getting really nasty. And um, people weren't getting paid any money. We knew we wouldn't, we wouldn't be paid, but, you know going to go on anyway, what are you going to do, get on the Islander and head back yes, to, yeah. to North Holt or wherever no, we, we thought, we're here now, we might as well play we know we're not going to get paid um, Tiny Tim had taken the money anyway in a briefcase so there was <laughs> the last bit of money that was you know, he'd, he'd said, I'm not going on unless I get paid, what is one of those and um, anyway, so we, 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 we did the thing and, and Hendrix desperately didn't want to close the show and his crew were trying to set their gear up and, and, and we, we were trying to set our gear up. And, and it was whoever got plugged in first was going to go on. And it was us. We, we did actually just... And Hendrix was well miffed. Went back to his dressing room and, and we did our... Whatever it was, our show. And then I, I watched the first couple of songs of Jimi Hendrix. And I knew it wasn't going it wasn't, it wasn't to be great. It wasn't bad. It just, he wasn't in a great mood. And sadly, we didn't live much longer than that. And it was a, always in my mind, you know, this was a, one of those sort of sad occasions where you, mm. the chance you, you might have had to go and give him a sort of, you didn't do man hugs back then. No, but, no. But if you what did, it was that kind of a thing. Yeah. You were just like, oh, could you, mean, you know, cheer up, it'll be good, go yeah. for it, you know. Mm. Mm. Can't wait to hear Purple Haze, Jimmy. You know, yeah. you were wanting to push him on and make him feel good but uh, he just had a not a great night what did broadly what did they make of you in america well we're a little weird we didn't i said like zeppelin we didn't really care whether they liked us or not so they did whereas poor old cliff who was just desperate to be loved in america they didn't and to this day of course he carries this this this, this terrible See, think that's, that's the secret of making it in america I don't th- care I about i think don't care too much about it they, 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 americans spot phonies and if you try too hard they're going to they, they, they won't they won't go for it and roxy music who i when they first came out i thought oh, this is great and and they came and did two shows at at uh, madison square gardens as the the opening act at my invitation and it just, it was awful. The audience hated them because they were all dressed up in sort of silly clothes and preening yeah. and, and, and trying to look very, um, whatever they were at the time, that, that period of time where it was all glam rock and silly. And, and the Americans just looked at them and, and just started booing. They just didn't, didn't like them. And, and it, was, it was very sad because if you've invited a, an act to come <coughs> and work with you and they, 
and they don't do well, um, then it's um, you feel embarrassing. <laughs> you feel kind of guilty. You do. Uh, I'm just going to whiz through this stuff yeah. because uh, we guess we've got to, we've got to finish it. Uh, yeah, on time I, so you can get I, back. I should explain that I'm an early morning guy and I do yep. my I do my promo <laughs> phoners with various people in different places, usually pretty early in the morning, and tomorrow I've got an early start. And I'm on the last train back to the West Country tonight, and if I miss that, it's the bus. It's a long way. And not, so I've got, got to leave on time. I've stolen this next visual today yep. from, from Classic Rock magazine, yep. who I think ran a piece about... The Jethro Tull albums ranked from worst to best. And I don't know what conclusions they came to, but I just wanted you to tell us what you think are the best and the worst. We usually agree on this. You know, audiences, fans and I. I, I'm not so different. You know, the ones that people don't really think are very good, I'm inclined to agree with you. It's, um, you know, we're we're, we're on the same page, as they say. It's not too difficult. Which ones are those? Well, you know, the, ones, the, the popular one to have disliked, unless you're a total nerd, zonked-out fan, passion play. That was just not successful. Right. But now, of course, there are people who, who, for them, it's the best Jethro Tull record ever. I mean, Stephen Wilson, for example, when it came to him remixing a passion play, I said, Stephen, look, we just missed this one out. Yeah. Oh, no, it's one of my favourites. I said, well, I'll tell you what, you can do it, but leave out the saxophone. <laughs> so he humoured me by saying, well, I'll keep it really low in the mix. But of course he didn't. And, uh, it, um, so, yeah, some people just love that stuff. Um, Iron Maiden. Steve Harris is a huge fan of, of, of uh, a passion play. And um, it's endearing to hear that. There are people who were moved by that kind of music. But it, it's too dense, it's too complicated, it's... It's a mess. <laughs> so, but broadly, you what kind are the of, ones you like? Then? You agree with the public? <laughs> yeah. it, it's a mess. Um, but two bits of a passion play will be on the next tour, <laughs> just, to, yeah. just just to show you the best and the worst of Jethro Tull. So you're putting together your, your set for the the yeah. uh, 50th anniversary, and it's it's going to have all your favourites. Well, it's going to have some of my favourites and some of the things that um, are in there because I've not played them for a long time, and in a couple of cases, I've never played them live on stage. And then it's things like the passion play bit. But on the face of it, I've been oh, I have to do this. But the trouble is, once you start getting into it and you start playing it and the guys in the band are you know, I, mean, I had to, I had to uh, get Steve, Stephen Wilson the, well he's packing his suitcase to go on a world tour a couple of weeks ago and uh, John O'Hara the keyboard player said I, I can't figure out this, this organ bit and piano bit going together here in, the, in this part of a passion play and would Stephen Wilson be able to help us? I said well, I'll send him an email but he's, he's, he's leaving in the morning and, and Stephen replied immediately to the email, having gone to one of his big hard drives and pulled off the keyboards for this particular part of a passion play and, and, uh, and sent it to, to John, who then was able to, you know, work, work it out and figure out what was going on. But once you get into it again, you know, you, you, you start to think very much in the way that you did when you wrote the music and performed it. You, you put yourself back into character, your earlier self, and, and that's what I try to do. I, I'm, I'm, I try to get in, back into my own head, back into that frame of reference. It's a bit like being a, I suppose, being a character actor. You know, you, you're having to get in there and find that, that person again um, and, and be that person that you were. It's, um, it, it's, it's, it's not so 
difficult to be enthusiastic about even even the rubbishy stuff. Right, so that's that's Jethro Tull. Let's just talk a little bit about you and your life outside Jethro Tull. And, and then, you know, the, one of the things people always say, you know, it's one of the things that in pub conversations people say, yeah. Ian Anson, trout farmer, you know, or salmon farmer or whatever. That's a salmon, yeah. There you it's, go. Um, yeah. <laughs> But that, that was an incredibly a big successful part of movie, your life. This, this, you know, the enterprises well, outside yeah, for, music. For, for, 20, for twenty years, it, it was, and it was. It's what you know. I didn't get to be a policeman. Didn't get yeah. to be a journalist. You know, if, if all you leave behind you is, oh, I just did this one thing. I played the flute and, flute and stood on one leg. You know, big deal. And um, you know, <laughs> Peter St. Peter says, oh, "All right, well, come on in anyway." I don't suppose you did any salmon farming, did you? Oh, I did that as well. Yeah. Oh, come on, get you a great little one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so uh, yes, that that was twenty years of being an aquaculturalist, um, and also a fish processor. And, and unlike everybody else, I had the the audacity to do everything from because uh, the, the the brood pens were in here where the mature fish were kept for eggs, and we would produce the eggs. We would then put them to our freshwater sites where they grew on as smolts and then transfer them to the sea, grow them on for a couple of years, send them to our, one of our three different processing plants in, around the Inverness area. And then they would be in uh, Sainsbury's and uh, in lots of interesting places that we got into. Not, not necessarily because people knew it was anything to do with me, no. because I didn't want to get too sort of, you know, too, too involved with it from a a publicity point of view. I don't want to use me as a, a marketing tool to sell fish. So it was, you know, I, I kept out of the way most of the time. So why did you stop? Environmental issues to do, not with um, the, the ones that most people consider about, but it's actually to, mainly to do with the feed stuff, that we're plundering the oceans for prey species that salmon eat in the wild because they, they, they don't like eating rubbish. They only eat what they like to eat. As, as, as wild fish and so we're plundering the oceans for capelin and, and uh, other species, oily fish species in order to produce high, highly concentrated feed pellets which are easier to handle and get a much better food conversion ratio and um, <laughs> it, um, we're all taking notes here <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it, it, it just began to become something that the excitement, the pioneering days of aquaculture from a standing start it was Working in a marine environment, it was scary, it was dangerous, I mean, there were big storms and terrible things happening. But after a while, I just felt it was getting too industrialised. And, and, you know, when you're a major supplier to a company like Sainsbury's, they, they, you, you have to just, you, you, you know, you're, you can't you are, look about. No, it was a you huge know, you, cost. Yeah, 400 don't feel like it today. Yeah. Yeah. You can't yeah. do that. And, 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 of course, they will place impossible demands on you, especially yeah. at Christmas, where yeah. it's the big selling season. So yeah. it, was, it was stressful. You know, I'd be on mm. tour somewhere else and then you know getting some scary news what was happening back back home you know with uh, with uh, producing fish or, or problems we had you know sometimes yeah. with storms and and inevitably disease although we were very yeah. good at keeping i you know i work with friends of the earth and greenpeace I, you know i try to, to establish a rapport to try and explain to people what we were doing and some of the, the bogeyman stories were, were just, just whipped up, just rubbish. But there were bad things about, uh, about salmon farming and, and most forms of conventional agriculture and food production that made me uncomfortable that I couldn't really ultimately stand up and defend everything about it. So but, I, I decided it was time to move mm. on. But you've, you know, you've taken on big enterprises and you've also run the band... 
pretty much from, since 1974. Yeah, but it's not rocket science, is it? Well, except that. We were, we were talking about it beforehand, and I could only think of Dave Clark of the Dave Clark Five. Who yeah, great drummer. I read a wonderful <laughs> interview with you. He, he you managed said on, his own group. He said, on a tour bus, you like to relax by reading spreadsheets. <laughs> bands, bands accountancy, you know. I've never. Well, actually, it's not true. I have been on a tour bus, but only when it's, uh, you know, a short journey where we're on the way back to an airport or something after the yeah. end of a tour. But I, I'm not a bus guy. I can't sleep on a bus. I have to sleep in a bed, and I'm preferably half an hour after I've come off the stage. I'm asleep. I, I, I can't do this bus thing. It's half an hour, really? Too rock and roll for me. Half an hour from stage. It's probably an hour to get packed up, cleaned up, back to the hotel, but boom. So you're not one of those people who comes off stage fizzing with adrenaline and feels that they have to go and have lots to drink? I'm fizzing usually with a very nice ice-cold beer, but I'm I'm not a, you know, one one really nice beer after a show, sometimes a glass of wine, but then I'm I'm straight to bed. Because I wake up wherever I am, whatever the time zone, 6.30 in the morning, hello... It's, you know, I'm just so happy to be able to pursue my favourite hobby in life every 24 hours. My hobby being waking up waking in the morning. Waking up in the morning, yeah. <laughs> so oh, that, easy to please. <laughs> that was the band, that was a picture of the band that's uh, on the tour, I think, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So this starts in April. How long is it going on for? Is he going to be like well, Leonard Cohen's final no, tour? No, I mean, I've said to everybody, listen, it's, it's, I'm, I'm not going to be a party pooper. I'm going to really enjoy and totally get behind it, having a lot of fun doing the 50th anniversary tour, but I console myself with the knowledge it's only for ten and a half months, and then I can get on with the rest of my life. I thought, because yesterday, I think it was my son, who's my agent, apart from... North America or somebody else, but the rest of the world is my son. I mean, if you're going to pay your agent 10%, you might as well keep it in the family, right? Yeah. So um, he said, uh, oh, I'm starting getting these offers for next year, and, um, you know, how, how far do we want to go on doing the, the 50th anniversary? And I said, well, you know, if it's some places that maybe we couldn't physically, geographically fit in this year, maybe we can creep into 2019, but I don't want to go back to America or the UK doing the 50th anniversary tour more of. It's not the 50th, this would be the fifty, the 51st anniversary, which doesn't have that ring of uh, <laughs> it's not marketing awesome. sensibility about it. Right. Well, we wish you the very best of luck with that. Yeah, and true to your word, it's one minute to eight. Absolutely. And we're, and we're all... We're see, we can sense their we want, you, yeah. we want you we to want get back to the West Country and, you know, you're, you're looking at the inside of your lids by about half past ten. It's been a delight having you here this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, Ian Anderson. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by The Word. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.